0: Good morning everyone. Uh, I hope these are all doing well and managing to adjust OK to this new situation that we find ourselves in. And at this time, as we as a church family are scattered, it's such a blessing that we can still come together online to praise God and to worship his name. And personally it's been particularly heartening to see how this difficult situation has been used by God to reinforce the unity within our own church but also uh, churches within our local uh, communities and even further afield, there's been a real sense of togetherness through it all. It's written in Matthew, chapter 18, verse 20, it says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So we can be confident, no matter how we come together, whether it's face to face or through digital means, that God is with us and he's with us at this very moment. And from that, we can trust that he'll see us through the weeks and the months that lie ahead. And that from this situation, we'll emerge in a deeper relationship with him and each other. So as you know this, this is the week where we mark uh, the beginning of Holy Week. It's the period of the year where we reflect on the death of Jesus and really celebrate his triumphant resurrection. And for those of us who follow Christ, These two critical events are the foundation of our faith and they're also the basis of the hope that we carry in our hearts concerning salvation for all and eternal life. And it's this solid ground that we tread together. It's captured so powerfully by the famous Bible verse in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. That is the good news crystallised and made plain for everyone. So in the coming week, we should really rejoice greatly as we're reminded about God's faithfulness, his mercy and his graciousness that he's shown us through his son Jesus Christ. It's an important week for us as believers but we should also not lose sight of the fact that this is also An important week for those who don't believe. Do you know why? Because whether people realise it or not, the death and the resurrection of Christ profoundly shaped the course of human history. No other historical event, no other historical event even comes close to having such a profound impact on the world. These events that are recorded in all the four Gospels have moulded cultures shaped societies and affected countless lives throughout the ages. They have brought hope and meaning to millions of souls. So everyone, believer or otherwise, has been touched by the life of Christ Jesus. He's the most important figure in all of human history. So if you've, by an act of great providence, stumbled across this recording uh, and you're new to DBC We would strongly urge you to investigate the person of Jesus. Who was this man? And why is it he's affected the world in such a remarkable and profound way? Why put your faith in him? These are things that you should investigate. And here at DBC, we would count it a blessing if you wanted to discuss it more. So today, church family, we'll look at the most important week in the life of the most important person that the world has ever known. And to do this, we're going to be reading from uh, the book of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. So that's John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. So I'll just give you a wee moment to find your place in the Bible, or or to access your, your app. So if you can join me in reading this passage together, it says, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed, who, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, You've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now <clears throat> passage is very brief in nature, but it contains a range of subplots that when you put them together, they lead up to the events that will result in the death of Jesus and the end in his resurrection. So this passage is the opening act of our story that culminates Uh, and the successful completion of God's rescue mission for these people. So let's dig into the passage. We'll look at each verse one by one and see how they speak into our individual lives. So if we look at the opening verse together, it says the next day when a large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So let's pause there for a moment. So I think it's important to give context to this passage uh, to really uh, explain what is this festival the crowd are celebrating so what they're celebrating is the festival of passover this was an annual event that was held in which the jewish people would celebrated their liberation from slavery uh, in egypt if you turn your bibles with me to the book of exodus chapter 12 verse 24 through 27 we read about the significance of passover and why it is The Jewish people celebrate this festival so passionately. So it says in the the verses keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So what we learn in this passage is that despite the fact the Israelites were deserving of God's judgment, deserving all his wrath, he spares them from this. What we also know from scripture though is that sin must be accounted for. It cannot go unanswered. So how does God find his way around this problem? How is it he's able to spare them from his wrath? Well, he exempts the Israelites from his ju- judgment by way of a substitute. And to achieve this, the Israelites were t- to take the blood of a sacrificial lamb, dub it in the doorposts of each of their home as an act of atonement for their sin. And when God's judgments came, it would pass over their homes and they would be spared. And it's only when the the Pharaoh realises that the, the Jewish people have been exempt from God's judgment and it's only his people who it's been cast upon that he agrees to set the Israelites free from slavery so that they may return home to the promised land. So it's by the blood of the Lamb that the Israelites find their freedom from Egyptian oppression and are able to go home. And that is why the Passover is so important to them. And that's why it's celebrated so passionately. So how does this story taken from an ancient text written so long ago apply to our modern contemporary lives? Well, the reason is like the Jewish people, we are also oppressed, but not by a human tyrant like the Pharaoh. We are oppressed by our sin, we're enslaved by it. We're in bondage to a world that corrodes our souls, and decimates God's plan for our lives. Now that seems pretty heavy and it seems difficult to accept but I'd really urge you to consider where sin exists in your own life. What are you enslaved by? Are you enslaved by addiction? Maybe it's money has a grip on you. Maybe it's sex and lust. Maybe it's something less obvious. Maybe it's your self-image. Maybe you're enslaved by what other people think about you. Maybe it's your work and career. That is the dominant force and the focus of your life. Maybe it's just pleasing other people. Maybe you have a strong urge to please other people over yourself. Fear a man. Maybe it's greed. And the list could go on. But I promise you, if you honestly examine your own heart, it won't take long to find out where sin exists in your own life. It's easily found. We're corrupted by this world. And even in our best moments, the shadow of sin can cast a light out from our soul, rendering us selfish and opposed to God. At our core, we are corrupt. And recently, firsthand, we saw this innate selfishness play out in our society. During the first week of the coronavirus people um, people immediately became driven by fear and self-preservation. Panic buying was triggered and there was a blatant disregard for the needs of other people. And as society became soaked in its collective anxiety there was a nurse, her name was Don Bilbro, who uploaded a tearful and emotional video to social media to ask that we refrain from this type of behaviour. And the reason she did that is because she'd finished a shift in hospital, she'd worked hard all day and on her way home had popped into the supermarket to buy groceries only to find that the shelves were bare and she had nothing to eat. The very people that she had worked hard all day for to keep safe and to shield eh, from this virus had betrayed her service for them. Stressed and exhausted she broke down in front of a nation that over a matter of days had become rabid and frightened. Now what's important to acknowledge here is that the people who were buying all the food and who were acting out this sense of self-preservation, they weren't coming for a place of deliberate malevolence. There was no willful desire to harm others. And that's that's an issue worth considering because in our culture, sin is often conflated with obvious acts of evil or deliberate intent to cause harm most people won't fit into that category so it can be therefore easy for people to tell themselves that generally speaking they're good at heart and they can make light of their indiscretions and from that they can consequently believe that they they're, they're free from sin so it's important to ask yourself At a gut level, do you really believe that there's an absence of sin in your life? Do you believe that when it's all said and done, you're good at heart? Are you someone who tells yourself, because you may give to charity, or you volunteer, or generally speaking, you show kindness to others, that you're decent, and you're upright, and you're without sin? And if that is the case, then it's important to realise how deep it runs, Sin is so insidious and it often lurks in our hearts, waiting to strike when we least expect it. Often, when our backs are against the wall and when we're frightened, when we're confused and when we're hurting. And what we noticed at the first hint, at the first hint there might not be enough for everyone in society, the social cohesion of society was tested and put under strain and sin had its day And that's a picture of the human heart at its default setting, and it's ugly. The truth is, we're not as good as we think, we're not as kind as we think, we're not as compassionate as we think, and we're not as concerned for other people as we think. Under threat or strain, we are easily enslaved by our own needs and our own desires, and we're prepared to adjust, adapt, or drop our moral code at the first sign of trouble. At our core, we're not conditioned to serve other people. Instead, we're conditioned to preserve ourselves. This is who we truly are at a heart level. It's sobering, and it can be really difficult to accept that. But it's the reality of the human condition. And if you think I'm overstating matters, if you think I'm being over the top, then there's a long history of human affairs that tells us otherwise. So God knows we, like the Jewish people, also need to account for our sin. He knows we're held captive by it, we're enslaved by it. And we need someone to break the chains that binds us to our sinful actions. And the chain breaker is Christ. He is our sacrificial lamb. We are spared by his blood. And the story of how Jesus liberates us from our sin, begins when he enters the city of Jerusalem. So if we move on in the next part of the passage <clears throat> Verse 13 it says, They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So when Jesus enters the city, he's met with this large crowd who are very joyful, they're euphoric and expecting they're waving palm leaves. And those are those are really important to acknowledge. In ancient times palm, palm leaves symbolised joy, peace and victory. So by the crowd using these to greet them shows that they hold them in the highest regard. They see him as a very, very important person. It's the equivalent of rolling out a red carpet. This is a man who's seen as eh, being special. Someone who they view extremely important and the reason why they're so euphoric about his arrival is to be found in the word Hosanna in ancient Hebrew this phrase means something along the lines of save us I pray so by shouting this phrase it's clear that the Jewish people see Christ as a saviour as some description we can't know for sure exactly how they thought about him But when we put these two aspects of the verse verse together, it would seem that the Jewish people believed that Jesus was sent by God to liberate them from the oppression of the Romans. And that's the tyranny that they want saved from. That's what they seek salvation from. And it was their expectation that Jesus would be a kind of messianic military leader who had been foretold in the Old Testament It was their hope that he would be a great leader, reminiscent of King David, and he would free them from Roman occupation, using brute force if necessary. It's of course possible there was people in the crowd who did see Jesus for who he truly was, God in the flesh. But what we know is is that it's clear that the majority of the people don't hold that view of him. And we know that because Within a few days, they'll go for joyfully celebrating his arrival, extreme euphoria, to demanding that he be killed. You see, the crowd is fickle. Once it becomes clear to the people that Jesus has not come to free them for the rule of the Romans, fierce resentment soon takes a grip and it fuels the madness in a mob. They demand that he dies. Thereafter, they blindly reject Christ. And they cast him out to be humiliated, tortured and nailed to a cross. What becomes apparent as the story progresses that although Jesus was the king that they needed, he was not the king that they wanted. So who are we in this story? Well we are the Jewish people. We are also fickle. We're apt to reject God when he doesn't meet our expectations or our life just isn't working out as we hoped. In those moments of life where it's all going wrong, we have got a proclivity to lose heart in Jesus and chase after the kings of the world. We chase after false, false idols. So it's really worth considering how often do you reject the king that you need in order to chase after the things that you really want? When push comes to shove, where does your heart really lie? Are you in the one moment cheering on Jesus and in the the next quick to reject him when the world doesn't go in the way you want it? Where does sin have a foothold in your life? What is it you really want or desire over what you really need? When I think of my own life, the true leanings of my heart are often revealed to me. I can meet with the guys for the church and we can be chatting about scripture. We can be chatting about the Christian life. The conversation might go something like this. I might say, first and foremost, I want a relationship with Jesus. That's the most important thing for me. Underneath the words though, underneath the words, hides a stronger desire for a personal relationship with someone for the opposite sex. There's where I really think my salvation lies. Or I might say, yeah, my identity is complete in Christ. That's the lens in which I view myself. Underneath the words, looks, the need for approval from this world. It matters to me what other people think. My identity is more in the world than it is in Christ. And as believers, we can camouflage ourselves in Christ. But who you really are and what you really desire, will always be revealed by your heart. And I would urge you to really examine the content of your heart. If we move on and look together at verses fourteen and fifteen, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So these these verses are a direct a direct reference to the the book of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 it was written around 500 years before the birth of Jesus and in this book the prophet predicted that the the king of Israel would make his arrival while sitting on a donkey so this is the the passage this is uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9 it says rejoice greatly daughter Zion shout in triumph daughter Jerusalem look your king is coming to you he is righteous and victorious humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, not for the fir- first time, fulfills a prophecy predicted within the Old Testament scriptures. If we move on quickly and we look at verse 16, we learn that the disciples, at least initially, don't recognize the significance of this event. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So even in this moment, even the Lord's friends, his most trusted companions, are blind to the fact that he's entered the city to claim his kingdom. It's only later when he ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God that he fully comprehend all that happened. And this is because the disciples, like the crowd, are, also don't recognise who Jesus truly is. Until his mission was completed. If we look together at verses 17 and 18, it says here, Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. These two verses are really important. They're a real sharp reminder. About the power of service and the power of testimony and evangelism. The miracles that Christ performs throughout all the gospel stories had incredible power to convince people and bring them to faith. In fact, that's one of the main reasons such a large crowd has flocked to see him. So, as believers, it's really, really important that we mimic Christ in that regard, that we mimic his servanthood for the lost and broken of this world. We must testify like he did about the saving grace of Jesus Christ and with his help reach out to those uh, reach out to those who are lost and broken in the hope that they will find faith in the Lord. And friends if you look at me uh, look with me sorry the final verse verse 19 it says then the Pharisees said to one another you see you've accomplished nothing Look, like the world has gone after him. So how does this verse speak into our own lives? Well, here we find is, is that the Pharisees are deeply disturbed and threatened by Christ's witness and his testimony. It unnerves them. As they watch the crowd shout his name, the world that they know starts to disappear before their very eyes. And in response, their hearts darken. And as we've seen in recent weeks in our own society, fear and self-preservation takes hold of them. It takes a grip of their souls. And to the Pharisees, Jesus represents the loss of their power, the loss of their influence, the loss of their status. The fear the world is lost to them as it goes after Jesus. What they don't realise though, is that they've misread the crowd they fail to realise that most people in the crowd have no real heart for Jesus. The adulation they've got from him is fair wearer and it will soon depart when they realise he's not going to meet their expectations. So the crowd and the Pharisees are united as one in their blindness to who Jesus truly is, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And in the scriptures we learn that Jesus knew that to be the case. And he weeps, he weeps for the city. If you look to chapter 19 of the book of Luke, verses 41, 44, it says here, As he approached and saw the city, he he wept for all, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognise the time when God visited you. Powerful stuff. Next week, we'll learn out what the consequences of fear and self preservation were how it was demonstrated by all the players on this morning's passage and the consequences were our Lord hanging from a tree rejected, ridiculed, beaten, bloodied and dying and his response to all this is what makes the Christian message unique in all the world in his despair, and his suffering he cries out to all those responsible that they would be forgiven because they were blind and ignorant to who he was and what they what had done to him pray for your enemies when we apply this message to our modern context it's easy to see in our modern world that many people are equally disturbed and equally f- uh, threatened by Christ for many people in our culture Christ threatens their power their status, their ambitions, their freedom and many other things and he's rejected. For many others, he just doesn't meet their expectations and he's rejected. In our culture, people are prepared to accept Christ as a great moral teacher, a man of immense love for other people, a paragon of compassion and virtue this is an image of Christ which is tolerable and acceptable for a great many people, and one that accords with their own expectations and desires. Like the crowd in the passage, he's a Messiah of their own making. However, this is not a complete picture of Christ. Writing in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argues that given all we know about Jesus, there are only real three options available to us when we decide who he truly is option one he suggests that given the claims Jesus was making if they're not true then he's delusional and suffering from some sort of mental illness the second option he says if he knew his claims weren't true then he's not only deceiving himself but he's deceiving other people and he's a liar and if either option one or option two are correct, then he's not a moral teacher because these are not moral acts. And with that in mind, the only other option available to us is was what he was saying is true. He is who he claimed to be. God in the flesh. There's no other option available to us. So we can't just simply explain him away as a great moral teacher, a good and decent person who came to an unfortunate an unjust end. To follow Christ requires that you turn away from the world. It equates to loss of the world and like the Pharisees it's too much to bear for many people. Therefore as believers when we witness and when we testify to his name we too will also encounter the same hostility, the same ridicule as did the Lord. However, like him, we must remain steadfast and have courage in the face of such a challenge. It's God's will that we share the gospel with other people, that whoever believes would be baptized and saved. Our God completed his mission on the cross, and this is the one that he's bestowed upon us. Therefore, we must press on, not give up, be reliant on God and each other. So church, family and light, like all, all we've looked at this morning, I want to leave you with three points of application that you can use this week as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So the first point for application is to examine your life. And what I mean by that is to really, really dig down and, and, and really, really investigate what you're enslaved by. What oppresses you in your life? Is it power? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it anything like that? What really has a hold on you? What do you need help with from God in your life? And having done that, you know, remembering that Christ has died for our sins and that we're free, but that doesn't mean that we don't stand firm and move away from the sin in our lives. This is what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So I would really encourage you this week to spend time in prayer, asking that the Father would set you free from the sin that oppresses you in your life, but also take action to move away from it. If greed is an issue for you, pray about it but then go and give generously. If power is an issue for you, pray about that, but then take the time to delegate or to build someone else up. If you seek a relationship above all else, pray about that and ask that the Father would be enough for you, that he would be sufficient. The second point for application is to examine your heart. And what I mean by that is to really think about how rooted are you in Christ? Is you is your all in all rather like one of the crowd who are just apt to turn away from him eh, when he doesn't meet expectations or life just not going the way you want it? You know in everyday life there's many times when we'll be tempted to turn away and pursue the world and this is particularly relevant in the moments where we're hurting, confused, lonely or feeling lost. At other times, the world just may seem more attractive. It seems more exciting, and it seems more desirable. But like the, unlike the crowd, we can't be fickle with our faith. And if we do that, there's sure to be consequences. In John chapter 15, verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. So we must never ever forget that it's the Lord that nourishes our souls and provides life-giving subsistence. Without him we have no stability and we have no solid ground to stand on when life is difficult. When we turn to the world instead we just enter a house I stand that's easily destroyed when the stormy waves of life wash over it. So we should pray and read uh, God's word daily. That is the soil and the water that we need to remain rooted in Christ. And if we read the word and we pray daily, then our faith will grow. And if we do that consistently, it will reach full bloom. And lastly, to examine your actions. And what I mean by that, do you follow Christ and serve others? Or are you a Pharisee you serve yourself? How much of your life is really focused in Christ's mission? If there's little time spent on this, then this could be your focus during eh, the Holy Week. And given the current situation we find ourselves in, coupled with the, the time of year it is, there might be increased o- opportunities to share the good news in the coming week. And I just want to touch on what's currently happening in the world. You know, in recent days I've noticed that The coronavirus is really starting to awaken people to the fact that how we ordinarily live, behave and treat each other is rooted in selfishness. We're starting to realise that we've always been isolated from one another but we've just not noticed. As we've been forced to abandon the normal patterns of life which are underpinned by individualism. For the most part, we've entered into this strange new reality, rooted in whether people realise it or not, Christian ethics. Over the last week or so, I've noticed increasing examples of people loving their neighbour. The social barriers that normally divide us have largely been dismantled by this unseen enemy and they have been replaced with this communitarian spirit that the church has long exemplified argued as necessary for a healthy, decent, caring society. People are now chapping and knocking on our neighbour's door to ask if they're okay, do they need anything? People are looking out for the most vulnerable members in our society. People are singing on the streets to each other across balconies. There's a sense of community emerging that's been unrecognised for such a long time. Hundreds of thousands of people have signed up to volunteer to support the people dealing with this virus at the front line, and to also reach out to those most affected in the community by it. The political interest in the vulnerable has uh, been incredible. This is the bit, there's been more social reforms in the last two weeks than has taken place since post-World War II era. The people that society normally hold in the lowest regard are now national heroes. Cleaners, delivery drivers, supermarket workers and carers are propping up society. Nobody is interested in the hoi polloi of the world. They have got nothing to offer in this situation. No celebrity, football player or banker can affect this in the way these people can. They are as dependent on these workers as you and me. The lowest have become the highest and humility reigns. Families become the heartbeat of everyday life. People are spending more times with their family at this particular time than they may have done in a long while. I've had more contact with my mother and did more for my mother in the last three weeks than i've done in the last three months i really need to reflect on that because as i said earlier i'm not as good as i think when this is all over we'll have a choice to make we can return to a world underpinned by fear and self-preservation or we can continue down this new path that we've stumbled on And I pray that this collective experience of hardship would act as a catalyst for permanent change that when the lockdown ends we will not lock out each other. Friends, our society's been reshaped as it unwittingly embraces Christian living. So our job in the coming week is to show people the full menu on offer they have had a taste of it so I would encourage you to pray this week that God would open the door for you to share the hope within you where it's somebody that does not know Jesus. Let me finish with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy and the grace you have shown us all that through your Son, Jesus Christ, our substitute, we have been forgiven of our sin and given the right to return to the tree of life, Father, and gain access to your kingdom. Father, we recognise that although we sin less, we are not sinless. So, Father, I would ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would continue to shape us and mould us, that we would become ever more Christ-like, faithful and rooted in Him, Father. Father, as we get into this Holy Week, I we would just pray that the name of Christ would be proclaimed and that many would choose to cross, cross the threshold of your kingdom and dwell there forever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.